Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now age of radio On this week's episode, we're talking to Sam Persicelli of the Outfield Beer Project. It's a homebrewing project where he's chronicling all of the big beers that he is making, and man, he's making a lot. So, we're going to dive into his style and how he's achieving some really amazing high-gravity beers. This week on Homebrewing DIY. Welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this show covers it all. On this week's show, we're talking to Sam Pericelli. We're going to talk to him about his amazing work with really, really big beers. So stick around for the interview. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's because of you that this show can come to you week after week. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. I have some shout outs that I want to get through right now and kind of have a lot this week. So I want to thank John Marriott for becoming our newest patron Patreon member. Also, I'd like to thank Paul Moore for your support on Patreon. Sam P, thank you so much for your support. And just coming in today was uh, Brian Milne over from the UK. So thank you so much for your support. Once again, that support helps this show come to you week after week. And all of the money that uh, we use for this helps support the show and in homebrewing DIY in general and helps us grow. And you can get ad-free episodes for as little as $1 a month. So a single cup of cheap gas station coffee and you could be getting ad-free episodes. And I send you a nice little envelope of stickers as a way of saying thank you as well. So $1 a month, pretty easy. So sign up on patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. The last way to support us monetarily would be to head on over to coffee that's ko-fi forward slash homebrewing diy and there you can do one-time support and real easy even if you just go to homebrewing diy.beer there's like a little floating batch that says support me and if you click that that does a coffee transaction so very very super easy to do so there as well another way to support the show is to use our sponsor banners so head on over to homebrewing diy.beer there on the right side of the webpage you'll see our sponsors we have brewfather we have we have a new sponsor this week so you'll see a banner uh starting this week for keg factory and then we also if you want to even get a new brew bag you can head over to brewinabag.com and use that link and it lets them know we sent you and you can get some great stuff and it's not gonna cost you any more or any less some real cool stuff going on over at Homebrewing DIY. If you've, if you've been going to the website and you go to the website often, you're going to start to notice that we're actually starting to do written content. So Ryan Packmeyer and uh, Chino over from the, the admin over at Reddit, he's, he's kind of 
well, both of them have, have, have come on to homebrewing DIY as contributors, and we're really starting to dive into all different types of subjects in the written format. So not just a podcast every week where we talk to homebrewers or about homebrewing. We're now going to start doing some more written content that you could just hop on the website and read. This week, Chino actually wrote a really great guide on cleaning and sanitizing your brewery. And he's such a good writer, so detailed. It gets really, really into the, it starts off, you know, really high level. But then, you know, if you keep reading, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And so uh, I just, I, I love his writing style. I love Ryan's writing style. Re- Ryan likes to focus on different styles of beer and how to make those and recipes. And, and I think Chino will also talk about some different brewing techniques as well. So very excited for our newest contributors. We'll also have guest contributors that'll hop on every now and again and write articles as well. But, you know, homebrewing DIY, we're going to become your kind of source for not just homebrewing, but homebrewing knowledge and and just kind of be part of the entire homebrewing discussion. So very, very excited about some of those changes. And, you know, just going back to the Patreon conversation, we're able to do that because you're of the donations that we get through Patreon. So uh, once again, thank you to all of those supporters. Well, I think it's now time to just jump into this week's episode. And we're going to talk to Sam Persicelli and we're going to talk to him about his project where he's making a lot of big beers. I'd like to welcome Sam Persicelli to the show. Sam is the creator of the Outfield Beer Project, which is a homebrewing Instagram account that's got quite the following. And he mainly focuses on making large barrel-aged stout-type beers, and it's 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 a really great watch. So if, if, you, if you're out there checking stuff out, you got to check out his Instagram. He's doing some cool stuff. But I'd like to welcome you to Homebrewing DIY. Welcome, Sam. How are you? I'm good, man. I really appreciate you having me on and fitting me into your podcasting schedule. Really oh, man. to kind of dig in and talk about my, uh, my stout projects and how I can help everybody else brew big beers like me. Awesome. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, for me, it's one of those things where I think that big beers is its own kind of, don't get me wrong. When we look at the homebrewing process, the homebrewing process is generally the same. You know, you're going to mash, you're going to boil, you're going to ferment. But I think that there are different approaches you take to a low gravity beer versus a high gravity beer. And there are just there are certain things that you have to do to make quality big beers. And I wanted to just have you on the show to maybe talk about what your approach to big beers is, but let's just kind of start of how you got into them. Obviously you started homebrewing, but how did you get into homebrewing? What was, what was your big motivation? Yeah. So I got gifted a homebrew kit around, uh, I want to say December, 2017, a little bit before my birthday. And I started off with my small one gallon, all grain batches, actually didn't even know extract brewing was a thing. So kind of just jumped in head first with the all grain. Um, as I got comfortable with my process, I started slowly scaling and scaling up. I've, I always started off as an IPA guy. I've always really big into first, like the bitter IPAs. Hetty Topper's always been a perennial favorite of mine just because I had, uh, we had, my family had a place in Vermont growing up. So like when I was 18, my parents would sneak me a Hetty Topper under the table. So that was my first really introduction to craft beer. So I always tried to brew beers like that starting off. And then mid-2018, I got my first taste of uh, Angry Chair Brewing, which is a big stout-focused brewery in Florida, uh, about two hours away from where I am. Waited in line at 6 a.m. to get bottles at 9 a.m. It was a whole whole big experience, and I loved it. And I was like, how can I make these beers at home so I don't have to drive two hours and wait in line for a couple hours? So that was really how I got into brewing these big stouts. Uh, Jay Wakefield in Florida has been another big influence I kind of did the same thing there, drove over, waited in line for a while just to get some limited hyped barrel-aged stouts. So I try to patent my beers uh, off of commercial breweries like that. Um, kind of in your neck of the woods, a comparison to my stuff would be maybe Weldworks. Uh, although Weldworks kind of leans more on the sugar than Hydeal. The Weldworks beers can be kind of insane on that front. But yeah, so I really, I've been brewing for about three years, um, brewing these big stouts for about two years, but I brew maybe once a week. So I've reaching my hundredth hundredth brew day sometime soon um so a lot of people they maybe brew once a month or brew once every couple months 
But I think that iteration I've been able to do week to week uh, has really helped me improve my brewing really quickly. Yeah, and and so when we talk about like your approach, right? You you say you're trying to mimic a lot of the things that the commercial breweries that you love do. And obviously a lot of them do barrel style projects with these large stouts, right? What, what kind of things are you doing? Are, are you acquiring barrels from local distilleries? Are you doing wood chips? What, what are your kind of methods to try to maybe get some of that oak flavor in there? Yeah. So a lot of the beers I do are actually in these five gallon small format barrels. You get a lot of the similar character you do from the big barrels. You get it a lot quicker and you actually get a lot more, a, a little bit more oak versus spirit character. Now, I, I like the spirit character, obviously. I'm a casual bourbon drinker, not to the same level as, as I do beer, obviously. But I really like the oak aspect and how it balances with the spirits. And one of the big things I've noticed that homebrewers don't do, especially when they're trying to age their beer on oak or even in a barrel, is uh, the gravities of their beers. So a lot of these big commercial uh, imperial stouts, they finish at a higher gravity just so they're more apt, more more ready to age in a barrel long term. So I see a lot of homebrewers maybe aging their beers in the small format barrels for a month or two. I finish at a higher gravity so I can push the aging time a little bit. Uh, so Double Barrel Chaos Breaker was one I did recently. And that was five months in an apple brandy barrel. And another batch was five months in a bourbon barrel. And those were small format barrels I got from Barrels Direct. Uh, I've had really good results with Barrels Direct as far as sourcing the type of barrels I want uh, from the, uh, the small format distilleries I want. But anyway, so that higher finishing gravity, I finished around 1050 for that beer. That really let it age gracefully in that barrel. And the oak tannins didn't overpower the beer too much, didn't dry the beer too much out because I had that higher finishing gravity. And, I mean, when you see a beer, like a lot of homebrewers try to clone stuff that they can get in the store, like Old Rasputin and stuff like that, which is a great beer. But it's a relatively dry imperial stout. Uh, and if they're trying to go for these new style, new school imperial stouts like you see from these, these breweries, I think that one of the best keys to getting that mouthfeel while still getting the oak character is to, uh, to raise that finishing gravity a little bit. Yeah, you you want I that. I touched on a lot of different stuff there. So, uh, no, no, I we'll, we'll dive straight in. from yeah, the barrels to to the gravities and all that. No, no, you're good. We'll 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 hit on all that stuff, right? So, uh, I I let let's kind of stick back to the barrels, right? So you're you're buying you're mainly using these five the five gallon small format barrels from. Pretty much, I I would say that that size is going to be from smaller distilleries as well. And how many uses are you getting out of a barrel? Are you getting multiple uses, a single beer? Do you start with big beers and move to lighter beers? What's your barrel lifespan look like? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a, a good thing to talk about. Uh, I can kind of walk you through a couple of barrels I, I currently am using. So I had a beer that was called There and Back Again, a big uh, imperial maple stout. Uh, I put it in a maple rye barrel. So I emptied that the same day I filled it with a maple wheat wine. So I'm usually a uh, big stout first use. Uh, second use would be a stout that I don't necessarily want as much spirit character, something maybe like a pastry stout or uh, like a barley wine. The barley wine actually, um, I, I kind of based that approach off of, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with King Henry from Goose Island. I am familiar with that, yes. Yeah, so what they did was uh, Goose Island filled a barrel. Uh, it was a, I think it was like a pappy barrel or a really fancy bourbon barrel. They filled it with uh, their Bourbon County stout, let it age for two years. That became Bourbon County rare. And then they emptied that barrel, and they put a barley wine in there, and that was King Henry. So I've uh, uh, modeled a lot of my barley wine approaches off of that kind of process. And I know a couple other breweries have done something similar, but I know Goose Island was the first to do that. So I try to get – I definitely always get two uses out of it. That first big stout, uh, and then either a, uh, a less assertive stout, something that I want a little less character on, or a barley wine. And then sometimes I try to stretch it to a third use. Um, I haven't done that too often. I don't really have a sour pipeline or anything. If you're somebody who does brew barrel-aged uh, barrel sour beers, that third through infinity use is are really useful for uh, keeping that barrel uh, flowing through your homebrew, homebrew pipeline. But yeah, so I usually do, do two uses. I've done a third occasionally, but I wasn't really happy with the depth of character I got from the spirit and oak profile. I felt like the barrel was pretty well spent after those two uses. Yeah, what, once you start getting into that third, fourth, fifth use, you start to, 
it, it changes, right? It's it's just yeah. not, yeah. And and that's where you, you do start to get some sour barrels in there. And once a barrel goes sour, it's it, it's either it's completely used for sours from here on out, or it's done at that point, right? Mm-hmm. And then when let, let's talk a bit about like you know you've got this kind of pipeline that you use through your barrels. Um, these five gallon barrels, they're probably what the seventy five to about one hundred and twenty five range when when you're finding yeah. them from barrels direct that seemed about right price wise so i i'm gonna kind of throw this out there and and maybe you can agree with me or not but let's think about you know we're, we're talking about making five gallons of these barrel aged stouts from you know fresh whiskey barrels that are gonna you know when you get them they're still gonna be wet and the cool thing that i think here is that and what people don't really put perspective is yeah it's 75 to 125 dollars depending on what distillery you're getting but in all reality when you think about going to a brewery and buying a barrel aged stout at anywhere from 20 to 30 dollars per bottle right and being able to make five gallons of it and end up with you know let's say you're doing bombers so you get 22 to 25 of them in all reality for about the equivalent of about i would say five or six bottles of stout you're going to end up with about four times as much as that would you say that those economics kind of work in the barrel aged stout realm that way? Yeah, and I actually was talking to my dad about this recently, and he was like trying to do the math on if it was worth it to be brewing these big stouts versus just buying them. And when we did the math, it ended up being about five to eight dollars per bottle for for twelve ounce bottle for this last one I did the there and back again, and that one's more expensive than some other because I dumped a lot of maple syrup into that, and maple syrup to get in the high quality stuff can be expensive. I dumped some pretty fancy coffee beans into that, and that can be expensive as well. So if you're just doing a big imperial stout barrel, it'd probably be even less than that. And it's definitely worth it if it's something you're really passionate about and uh, you don't want to wait in line for these these hype releases. Yeah. And, and when you talk about quality, and, and this is something that like I, I've, I've been watching you for a while, and so it's something where I – you know, I haven't got to try your beer. We tried to work out getting a beer here for me to try, and things just didn't work out. I think you were you were really focused on getting your stuff out for in for the national homebrew competition, which is awesome. And but but for me, it's something where you know I've seen a lot of your processes, and you have very very solid processes. You know, and, and we're gonna have to go by personal opinion, but. You know, you've ta- you you obviously are the type of person that's following a lot of these different commercial stouts, and you feel that at the homebrew level, you're making as good a quality, if not better quality, than what you're getting at breweries, right? Uh, yeah. So this is actually a good story I can bring up for this. So for my birthday um, in December, we did a kind of socially distanced blind non-adjunct stout tasting. Uh, so we had big boys like Perennial Maman, uh, Toppling Goliath Assassin. A couple of local options. Uh, a Bourbon County was in there as well. And my double barrel Chaos Breaker finished kind of middle of the pack. But it beat it beat Maman out. It beat some big boys out. So I was really happy with how it showed there. And it felt like it, it was – it belonged. It felt like it belonged in the, in the group of the seven beers that we tasted. Uh, and then one, another one of my buddies cracked uh, double barrel Chaos Breaker again next to a double barrel Assassin from Toppling Goliath. I think it was last night or the night before. And he said – Neck and neck, these this beer belong with that beer. So, uh, I mean, I'm always really hard on my my own beers. I always think I can do something better. I always try to find the. I always look for the flaws in my beers. But I've just been really humbled by the feedback I've gotten from other people. And I I use Untapped, so I have all my stuff on Untapped, so I can see people I don't know if they share it with somebody or um, I can do a giveaway and I give somebody a bottle. I can see their ratings on Untapped and see what they think. And I've gotten overwhelming positive. Uh, feedback from that uh, form as well. So I'm just really humbled with the quality of beers I've been able to produce and the reception I've gotten from them. Yeah. And, and let, let's talk about some of your brewing techniques. Uh, you you kind of hit up on it a little earlier in the conversation where you're talking about, Hey, let, let you know, uh, Old Rasputin and the classic kind of imperial stouts out there uh, really finished dry. Uh, I I did a tasting recently on the show where we tasted dra- uh, Dragon's Milk Imperial Stout, and it was also you know eleven percent stout, but bone dry, right? But mm-hmm. yes, a lot of these like these small batch, uh, heavily sought after stouts that are out there do have a, a really high finishing gravity and and a lot of body to them. 
what what are what does your process look like to get some of these finishing gravities that are kind of on the more high end and, and more body side and and what does that look like and imagine i'm a brand new home brewer i've i've never made a big beer any any way you know explain it to me like i'm in fifth grade except for i'm able to drink because i'm 21 and <laughs> and and what does that look like to kind of at least on the on the grist to kind of get some of those those higher finishing gravities I actually listened to that episode uh, right before I hopped on here. So fresh in my mind. Uh, but yeah, so the main thing I do is I really want to get my OG uh, starting really high. So I either double mash or I boil down to uh, a lower volume, lower than five gallons. Or I have kind of an oversized mash ton I use a lot of times for these big stouts. So I'm starting north of 1.14 a lot of times. Uh, so like... Just pulling an example, Double Barrel Chaos Breaker, that started right at 1.14 and finished, I think, 1.05. So, yeah, so the long boil, the collecting a lot of uh, wort and doing a large mash or two mashes, that's really important, I think. And then I know a lot of homebrewers are concerned I need exactly five gallons of beer, but a lot of times if I'm doing something experimental or I don't want to pull the big mash ton out that day i'll do a half batch so i'll do two and a half gallons two gallons sometimes one gallon and i'm able to hit the gravities i want and get to that fg and i'm normally i'm not mashing super high or anything if i'm starting at a higher enough high enough gravity i can mash at 150 and i can hit the 1050 if i start at 1.14 and i'm normally i'm fermenting with chico or uh so4 so nothing too crazy on that front uh, I use lactose sometimes, depending on the style of beer. Usually it's for my more pastry stouts, uh, lactose or maltodextrin, depending on what I'm going for. Usually it's on something like Runaway was a big coconut stout I did. So I used a little bit of maltodextrin and lactose in that one. Um, but I usually don't use uh, e extra sugars like that. I usually It's usually all malt, uh, the sugars in my beer. But yeah, so that high OG, that long boil can kind of caramelize your, your wort, get you nice depth of flavor, but also make it easier to um, get a higher efficiency and get a higher starting gravity. So as far as the, the gravity-wise, those are my big things. The big mash, long boil, maybe getting boiling down to a lower volume. And then body-wise, I usually use a lot of oats. Most of my stouts would actually be considered oatmeal stouts. Uh, I actually got the trick from uh, Corey King, who did a video series on craft beer and brewing. He's a, a brewer at Side Project who... Uh, I've based a lot of my stuff on as well. And he, he's like, oh, yeah, we use up to 20% oats in our stouts. And I'm like, I'm going to start doing that too. And the body of my beers have, has significantly increased, just stuffing them as uh, full of oats as I can manage with my mash. And then I also slip a little bit of rye into a lot of my stouts too. Uh, small enough amount that you don't really get the flavor of it, but rye just adds crazy amounts of body, even in small amounts. So oats and the rye have been really helpful along with the, the finishing gravity a higher fg will get you bigger thicker more luscious body yeah i mean you look at a 1.14 finishing at a 1.05 you still have an almost 12 percent beer so it, it definitely has the alcohol but with that kind of body it probably doesn't have a lot of heat on the back end right and so uh or it doesn't have a, for me it's it's when you have there there can be a point where I, I want to say they kind of get boozy, if that makes any sense. And it seems mm -hmm. to me with that sweetness, it kind of helps cut through that booziness, right? Oh, yeah, it definitely it brings balance. If you couple that residual, residual, residual sweetness with the roast character, the stout, with the other maybe uh, specialty grains you add to it, maybe oak aging, maybe barrel aging, uh, it definitely brings a little more balance than you'd expect. A lot of times you think you see these high FGs and you think, wow, it's going to be a sugar bomb. But even my more traditional stout, I do one that's kind of in the vein of, a, of an old Rasputin that I've won some medals for in competitions. And even my most traditional stout finishes at 1040 because I want that residual sugar to balance off that assertive roast character and my uh, more significant hop character on, the, on that stout. So yeah, it, it definitely matters even in your more traditional stouts having a little higher FG. Obviously not super high. Like uh, I did one stout that was 1080 finishing gravity and that that might have been a little too much i think but uh, <laughs> even in your more traditional beers a little more residual sugar actually helps 
So one thing that kind of stood out to me is you're not using like big beer yeast, right? Or champagne yeast. Obviously, I, I don't see a lot of people doing that. But but you're not trying to push it past a standard kind of ale yeast. You're, like I said, you're using SO5 and SO4 type yeast. Are you doing larger pitches or anything like that to kind of make sure that they take off? Oh, yeah. I'm doing huge pitches. So okay. what I like to do is I actually brew like a smaller beer uh, beforehand. So like a like a... If I'm doing using the Chico yeast, I do like a blonde ale or an amber ale, or maybe like a lower five percent, six percent ABV stout. And I take that entire cake and I pitch that into the new beer. Uh, I essentially treat that little beer like a starter, like a giant starter. And I've had really good results from that. Really healthy fermentations. I, I've never really felt the need to push it past fifteen percent. I mean, I love my big beers, but I feel like at a certain point, uh, the ABV kind of overwhelms everything, and you, it's hard to bring balance on those. So even on, I did a 15% beer for my birth, uh, for my third anniversary at home brewing. And that one, uh, I just fed, uh, it was Chico yeast. I just fed it maple syrup through fermentation. And I was able to get that up to um, 15% just doing that. And the yeast uh, finally crapped out. It finally stopped fermenting the syrup at, uh, at 15%. Yes, yeah, so you can push Chico pretty high if you treat it right. If you have good, good fermentation processes, if you use nutrients, you air, aerate, thoroughly or use oxygen uh healthy pit you can you can get it you can get a lot of, a lot of a high abv from chico which i was surprised about when i first started doing it also feeding it in stages helps right so you're not just giving it all the sugar at once so uh, have you ever tried kind of that method where uh you might start with a pretty high gravity but then as it's going through and you want to add more kind of maybe adding some like dme or sugars to it to kind of help push it up have you ever tried anything like that yeah so I've only done that a couple of times. So I've done that with that anniversary maple stout. I fed it syrup, a lot of syrup through fermentation. And then the there and back again, that uh, maple rye barrel stout I mentioned previously, that one I added about, so it started 1.149 without syrup. And then I fed it about 10 gravity points of syrup during fermentation. And that one got up to 13 and a half percent. If I'm trying to get Above 13, I'm usually feeding a little bit of sugar during fermentation. Um, but I'm not, again, I'm not usually trying to hit anything north of 15. And the only one I've done north of 14 was that anniversary stuff. But yeah, um, if you're using normal ale yeast and you want to get to those those ABVs, the 14, 15, you definitely need to either be feeding it DME or feeding it sugars just to help that yeast get there. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that you don't want it to crap out. And if you, if you give it too much all at once, it kind of, it just kind of gets tired right and i i know we talk about them like they're people and they're not their yeast but they're our friends they they make beer we love them uh but yeah so so you do have a lot of these these kind of you know when we talk about like the traditional kind of stout making processes right you, you you talk a lot about a lot of the same things that a lot of you know the these breweries are doing you know oats rye uh for mouthfeel uh high finishing gravities to kind of get the the that body uh to cut through a lot of the alcohol because we're talking you know we're, we're talking 10 plus percent alcohol beers um you know barrel aging in in old you know uh, wet whiskey barrels in those five gallon barrels getting a couple uses out of them you know, when you're making stouts and you don't have barrels, like, uh, for example, you know, I, I personally, I live in Colorado. It, if I really put some effort into it, I could probably find some barrels pretty easily. But I originally am from Salt Lake City, and there aren't a lot of distilleries there, or there weren't in the past. I think things have changed now. I've been gone a few years. And so, for me, it's something where, you know, if 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 the availability for barrels is is not really there... What are some good resources to either A, get a barrel, or B, if I have to use things like wood chips, what kind of things are going to help me kind of get that that wood flavor, maybe some of that booze flavor, and what are some good kind of tips or tricks for like a new brewer in, in, in trying to get larger stouts that way? What I normally do with, um, if I'm not using a barrel, is I usually use oak spirals. I've noticed you get a little more depth of flavor from the spirals, a little bit better extraction, uh, you get a lot of tannins just from using oak chips, and I've had good results with cubes as well, but I just felt like I got better saturation of oak and more nuanced flavor over time with the spirals. And, I mean, I use barrels a lot, but if I'm using something like coconut or peanut butter in the beer, that's going to eat half my beer. I just feel sad starting with four five gallons in a barrel, barrel absorbing a little bit of it, then the coconut absorbing the rest. 
So I usually do seven or eight for those types of beers, seven or eight gallons, and I use the oak spirals. So I have a bet, lot better yield at the end of the day. So okay. if you're looking at a beer like uh, Runaway, which is the coconut pastry stout I mentioned a little bit earlier, that one was aged on uh, American oak spirals that I soaked in uh, Weller Antique bourbon. So I usually, when I soak stuff in bourbon or rye, I usually use something I would like to drink, not, not something super top shelf. Uh, Weller Antique is a very nice bourbon, but it's not Pappy or uh, William LaRue Weller or anything like that. So yeah, I kind of set these spirals up. I let them soak almost indefinitely until I'm ready to use them. Uh, I drop them in, and then I kind of taste as I go. Um, taste every probably I let it go a month usually to start off with, and then every couple weeks after that, I'm uh, pulling a sample from the fermenter or the keg uh, to see where it's at. And that's the cool thing with the spirals: you can age them, you throw them in a keg, and you can take oxygen-free samples through whatever the um, I get, through the outpost. As, as it's aging on the oak. So you can let it go pretty indefinitely and taste it almost every day, I guess, until it's gone. Uh, but the spirals have been really the best for me. Yeah. Oh, and then you, you, asked, you asked about um, sourcing barrels. Barrels yep. Direct's been really great for me. They had, a, for about eight months, they had a free shipping on small format barrels, so that was really nice. And uh, I've been able to get some really, really awesome barrels. There's a distillery called Reservoir in Richmond, Virginia. And they almost exclusively do the uh, the five gallon or ten gallon barrels, and I've made great beers with those. Those have given me spirit character uh, parallel to a lot of the, the large format barrels from these big big breweries. Um, and I think uh, Sean Hill from Hill Farmstead he actually used one of the small format reservoir barrels for a one off version of their barley wine uh, Aaron. So if, if they're good enough for Sean Hill, I think they're good enough for me. So yeah, I usually try to source those when I can from Barrels Direct. And then if they don't awesome. have those, I look for other options. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like the barrel guys, at least all the ones I know, are always on the search, on the hunt for a barrel, right? And uh, mm -hmm. trying to make friends with all the distilleries to make sure that they know when the barrels are available. <laughs> sure. We don't have any small format uh, distilleries that use these small format barrels near me in Florida. I know there's one about three and a half hours away. Um, kind of north, or actually more like Ford, north of Orlando. And I haven't made the trek out there to pick up some of those, which I probably should do if I'm going to fill a bunch of barrels in the, in the near future. Yeah. And then I, I'm just going to, you know, kind of throw it out there. Uh, if I were, you know, I'm, I'm brand new. I want to make a stout. What, what would you tell me, like, walk me through if, if this is my first time. Walk me through what a recipe looks like for a stout and how you would approach one. And we're talking, let, let's do something simple around a 10% imperial stout. Doesn't necessarily need to be super barrel aged or anything like that. And, and, and walk me through what that process would look like for you. Yeah, sure. Actually, I'm a beer smith open. I'm going to, I'll pull up um, kind of something to put to use as an example. So awesome. I'm almost always using uh, just normal two row, normal pale malt. I don't think the base malt gives you a lot of character in these beers. Uh, Maris Otter, if you're going for maybe something nut-inspired nut or you're throwing nuts in there, Maris Otter can add a nice little bit of nuttiness to balance to play off those nuts. Uh, like I did a, uh, a peanut butter stout recently, and I used uh, I had some Maris Otter left over. Not enough for the full grain bowl, but I used some Maris Otter in there to give a little bit of nuttiness. But yeah, so I'm usually about 60 to 70% two-row, and then I'll kind of work backwards. Uh, so obviously the main flavor contribution in your stouts it would be your roasted malts and i'm a little bit higher than a lot of people uh but i'm using roasted malts that aren't bitter that are de-bittered roasted malts for the most part so i'm about usually about 10 to 15 percent roasted malts usually if i'm going for a big kind of roastier imperial style i'll be on the upper end uh but i'm using a lot of carafa too carafa too you get gives you a lot of chocolate versus the kind of burnt acrid ashy roasted barley flavor uh so carafa too and pale chocolate are two malts i lean on pretty heavily for the roasted malts. I always use a little bit of roasted barley too, because I feel like having that little bit of roast, a little bit of ashy, acrid kind of roasted barley flavor in the background lets you know that it is a stout. Because I mean, historically that's been the big dividing line between the stout and the porter is that these stouts have more roast character, but also have that roasted barley character and maybe a little bit of the black patent character. So something like uh, double barrel chaos breaker, I had chocolate malt or regular chocolate malt, uh, pale chocolate and, and some carafa too. Uh, so about 10 to 15% of those. And then my crystal malts, I like to kind of layer in the medium crystal malts. So uh, crystal 40, crystal 80 on, on Chaos Breaker. 
and those are about 10% combined. So I'm usually 8 to 10% on the crystal malts, and those can add some nice little caramel um, middle tones uh, on the palate. I like to use Caramel Munich a lot too because I feel like you get that caramel, but it also adds a little bit of chocolate toffee to the to the beers. And then I'm usually 10 to 20% uh, flaked oats, a little bit of rye. So 20% total maybe uh, of these flaked grains, 16% uh, flaked oats, about 4% uh, 4% flaked rye. And then occasionally I'll use a little bit of sugar in the boil or a little bit of sugar during fermentation. So that wouldn't be make up more than 3% of the, of the overall uh, fermentables. But yeah, uh, I usually stick around 60%. I don't usually drop more than 60% of uh, base malt because you want, want to make sure you get that proper conversion, the diastatic power of the base malt to convert the sugars from the rest of the malts. And yeah, that's about it for as far as recipe design goes, as far as the malt bill. Hopping is just usually like a charge at the about at about 60 minutes just for bittering. Um, usually 40 to 60 IBUs, uh, nothing too crazy on the, on the hopping. For uh, guillotine, which is my more traditional stout, I'm hopping it almost like uh, an American pale ale in the boil. Um, nice big charge at 60. Hops kind of staggered throughout the boil, a little bit of a hop stand. That's the only only stout I really add hops to during the boil. Um, I usually just do a, a kind of a bittering charge. And when we talk about... Oh, actually, I'm going to take a quick break here, uh, and we'll have a quick word from our sponsors. And then when we come back, uh, I want to dive into a bit about, you know, what, what your, what you think your brewing is going to look like in the future. So uh, give me one second. We'll, we'll come right back. Hey, home brewing DIY listeners. I just want to thank support from our newest sponsor, the Keck factory. So the Keck factory is a homebrew shop down in San Antonio, Texas, our good friends down in Texas. And the Keck Factory is just your place where you're going to be able to get whatever you need, be it ingredients or even a, a brand new all-in-one brewing system. They're, they're going to be able to get you everything that you need. And the cool part about Keg Factory is, first of all, they're a great team. You're going to have real brewers, people who are brewing daily that can answer any questions. So you can just give them a call Ask them any question about brewing, and you're going to get somebody who's knowledgeable on the other side of that phone. The other thing that makes Keg Factory awesome is that they have a Keg Cash Rewards program. You can create your account. You can earn points for every dollar purchased, and you get 50 bonus points just for signing up, and you can use those points to help maybe accrue a new batch when you're purchasing things like a, a new all-in-one system. They have a huge stock and in inventory of everything you're going to need from ingredients to parts. They're, they've got it all. And if you're looking at getting something brand new, let's say you're going to get a brand new grandfather or a mash and boil system, or you want to go big and get a brand new Blickman system, you're going to be able to split that into four equal payments and make it interest-free. And, and as you know, sometimes it's just, it could just be that easy, right? Hey, I want to get a new brewing system, hundred bucks a month for four months. You could do that at keg factory. And so there's definitely really great options there. And the last part is that you're going to get free shipping on most orders over $75. And so just head on down to the team, go to kegfactory.com today and give them a call and tell them that homebrewing DIY sent you. And we're back. And so, yeah, Sam, let, let's dive into a bit of what your future looks like, right? You, you've really focused on a lot of uh, big beers and, and you know, these barrel-aged stout projects that you've been doing. And you've been brewing now. You, you said you just celebrated your, your third year of home brewing and even made a beer. I, I wish I knew the first day of the first batch I made, but it was an extract batch, and I did it on paper, and I don't have it anymore. And uh, But if you, you know... If you were to look at your brewing over the next couple of years, what, what are the mountains you want to climb? Actually, I pulled that anniversary date uh, off of Amazon because my parents ordered me that kit off of Amazon. So it's easy to just go look back in the, the past orders and you can find exactly when it ordered. But that's, that's, what, that's what date I celebrate my homebrew anniversary. But yeah, so um, I'm fortunate or I guess I should say unfortunate for my brewing future, but I'm actually headed off to medical school in July. 
So my, my plan uh, with brewing with that is I'm going to try to fill some barrels and do some stout projects during my off times in school and kind of package those when I'm able to come back home. And then uh, in the future, hopefully post-residency, I'll be able to have a nano brewery on the side. But uh, I'm trying to brew as much in the meantime before I go off to school. I've got a couple big projects I'm packaging or brewing. I really want to kind of focus more on lagers. Uh, I know a lot of brewers kind of gravitate towards lagers as they get more into brewing or as they get older. Uh, I love lagers, and I've always really wanted to brew great examples of them. And I've been getting close, but I'm still refining my techniques on those. And yeah, I'm looking forward to using barrels more, kind of pushing the limits of the aging of the barrels. I'm hopefully going to fill a 10-gallon barrel before I go off to school. And then, I've, I mean, I've got some brewery collabs lined up too, which I'm really excited about locally. So I'll be able to bully some of my brewery friends into putting some stuff in barrels for me, and then I'll come taste them when I get home. But yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm more excited to see how my long-term projects progress while I'm in med school. I'm going to really be able to push um, the, t- the time in barrels while I'm there just because I'll be able to be more patient because I'm not going to have it staring me in the face in my garage. Well, yeah, that that's true. But, you know, I, I, I let's talk a bit about loggers because I, I just did a, a episode last week on loggers. And it's kind of one of those things where – and here's something I always say, right, is that uh, while everybody goes to a brewery and they're drinking uh, hazy IPAs and barrel-aged stout and you look at the menu and those are all the things on the menu, right? Like they've got probably five or six different hazy IPAs with different hop combinations and a couple stouts. and But then if you actually go back into the brewery and talk to the brewer and talk about what beers he drinks day in and day out, if he's drinking his own beer, it's whatever lager they're making, right? Or it, it tends to to be the kind of more sessionable beers. And for me, lagers have been something I've been brewing for a few years now. And I I feel like I've actually, you know, won some medals with some lagers that I've made in the past. And and obviously I'm I'm kind of getting into some more experimental type of pseudo lagers and things like that. But uh you know, what, what would you say is your biggest challenge on the lager side and 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 kind of why you don't think you're quite there? Well, I mean, I've always tried to train myself so I'm able to detect off off flavors if they're present. And I've noticed occasionally in some of my lagers, I get a little bit of acetaldehyde. And that's just being super careful about fermentation. I've made it kind of a mission this past, or I guess I should say last year because this it's 2021 now. But in 2020, I really made it my mission to focus on fermentation health. And that's what really got me a lot closer to where I'm trying to get with my lagers. Um, I actually... Yeah. I entered a competition, uh, was a kind of regional competition on Long Island. I had a buddy, I sent some stuff up there too. And I got second place in the pale lager category for German pills. But I mean, it just, just to get it over that hump, it, the judges noted there was a tiny, minuscule little bit of an acetaldehyde in there. Um, so yeah, just the fermentation and making sure the fermentation is healthy and managing the temperatures and all that. Uh, I have an ink bird, I control my temperatures with an ink bird. Uh, but even in Florida, the temperatures can kind of fluctuate pretty drastically. So um, I'm working on tightening up that for lager fermentation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with how, with how I progress with that. I'm usually using 3470, pitching two or three packets, um, fermenting real cold and kind of bumping it up towards the end. Yeah, I, I feel like, uh, yeah, lagers are that thing where like, if there's anything wrong, there's nothing to hide behind, right? Like, yeah. it's just, it's it's all there. And if if there's, because, you know, the idea of the yeast is you don't want to taste any yeast, right? You, you want that out of the way. The idea of it, it's meant to be like, hey, we're going to take the most flavorless malt that we can possibly get, which is probably like Pilsner, right? <laughs> and we're going to try to make it be the only malt and just a little bit of hops for bitterness. And here we go, right? If you're making a Pilsner. And so it's something where I, I feel like that that's always been my challenge as well is, is if I can nail the fermentation, it, it's so good. And, you know, the ways I've done it is I've I've in the past I I'm currently using a, a ink bird on my temperature control, but I also haven't made any uh, cold loggers in a long time. It's probably been a it's been over a year, but I will say that uh, in my past I had you know fermentation control that I had PIDs on that I could keep within a tenth of a degree, and we were talking the internal temperature of the beer, not just the temperature of my fermentation chamber. And when I had that kind of temperature control that was when my loggers were at their best, right? I, 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 and I would do them, me personally, I just kept them cold the whole time. I took the time 
And it was it was sometimes was killer to just wait and wait and wait without ramping it up into the 60s. I would just wait and wait and wait until that thing was done and then slowly, slowly bring it down. And I could, you know, those were my favorite loggers is the ones that you just really took the time. But, you know, uh, having your fermentation clogged up that much is is tough. And, and yeah. yeah, that that's that's kind would, of the project. I would love to do that. I would love. I, I just wish I had a little more garage space to kind of have one dedicated fermentation chamber. I've I got I've got two. I got a mini fridge and a chest freezer, and I'm usually running a stout in one, and then whatever is next for the kegerator in the other. It's to, it's, it's tough to keep the stout pipeline going as well as having a long term logger like that. Um, yeah, but yeah, hopefully that's something in the future I'll be able to to be able to do is have like a dedicated lager fermenter and just do it clean, traditionally kind of the right way. Yeah. Actually, well, you get that nano brewery, man. <laughs> yeah. Then I get the nano brewery in the future. Yeah, I got, I got a buddy who's a doctor uh, who's in my homebrew club and he's actually opening up a, my, a brewery on the side right now. So uh, that's kind of goals. That's kind of what I aspire to do in the future. Well, that's awesome. Well, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's keep that palate up and uh, up and going and, and, you know, obviously you're, you're about to go to school. So, uh, and that's exciting and, and you're going to, you know, advance your career. But I love the fact that you're just like, I'm going to do this, but I'm not leave, leaving my brewing roots. And I have a plan for my brewing even after that. So, uh, you know, kudos to you, Sam. That's awesome. Well, uh, and speaking I of wanna, that, keeping yeah, that go palette ahead. going, oh, yeah. uh, speaking of keeping that palette going, I actually, so I was, I was president of my home group brew club the last year during COVID. Uh, but one of the first meetings or one of the last meetings before COVID uh, officially became a thing, we ran everybody through one of those off-flavored testing kits. And that, that one that helped me really identify acetaldehyde in my own lagers, but also it helped everybody else kind of realize, hey, this is this flavor, this off-flavor, this is where it's coming from. This is how we prevent it in our beers. Because, I mean, my homebrew club varies drastically in skill level from, your, you know, your new brewers to people like uh, who've been doing it forever to people who... Maybe I've been doing it three to five years like me, but are super, super passionate about it. Uh, so that was really helpful in kind of advancing my loggers as well. Yeah. Uh, those off-flavor kits are super cool. Uh, I we, We've done some in my homebrew club, and I have to say uh, eye-opening. For me, it's uh, I am not super diacetyl sensitive. It's just kind of like one of those things that like for years, everybody be like, I taste diacetyl. And I'm like, I have, I can't taste it. Right. It's not like my super sensitivity and having a diacetyl in an off flavor kit that was so in my face, it helped me to start to pick it up a little bit more in my own beers. Right. And so it's, it, it, it's, it's, I know it sounds like a small thing and some people are super sensitive to diacetyl and, and I'm just not. And, but having it, be so in my face it's now i'm like yeah that's that that's totally diacetyl right um and and now i can pick it up a little better i'm still not overly sensitive to it but at least i can pick it up whereas for years i think i was completely blind to it so yes those off flavor kits are amazing they they really just kind of they're to me eye-opening when you're trying to taste for off flavors and trying to improve your palate they're, they're a great thing I've almost uh, conditioned myself to be a diacetyl super taster at this point, just because <laughs> a lot of my early beers were just complete diacetyl bombs. Uh, so I'm I'm pretty good at picking it out now, just from torturing myself in the past. <laughs> I, I you know I was lucky. I didn't have a lot of diacetyl beers in in my own stuff, and and when I have, it, it's it's been pretty slight. But uh, I will tell you, after years now of of tasting beer at a homebrew club level and having you know lots of you know some meetings with you know thirty or forty brewers bringing beers, right? Uh, you you start to and then you know after we did tasting kits, now I'm like picking it up. It's it's like you know because you it, it it is one of those off flavors that that tends to be pretty consistently out there in the homebrew world right and so uh you know some of them are are not so consistent like i think like dms is one that you don't really pick up on a lot whereas uh yeah, diastole- just malts are pretty modified nowadays so it's yeah. really hard to get dms even if you tried it it's hard to get dms yeah it's it's a lot harder to get whereas like diastole you you know hot buttered corn man you see that stuff right <laughs> so uh, uh hey Sam, I want to thank you for coming on Homebrewing DIY. Uh, I'm gonna in the show notes. I'm gonna put a link to your Instagram account. Let's, let's, you know, if if you're looking for a great homebrew uh, account to follow and follow somebody's journey who's just really passionate about the hobby, uh, you know, Sam's uh, outfield project is gonna be awesome for you. So make sure you check that out. So go to the show notes and 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 click on the link and 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 say hi. Tell them you found him on Homebrewing DIY. And uh, Sam, thank you for coming on the show. 
I appreciate you having me on, man. I'm gonna. Ho- I'm hoping to get you some beer in the near future. You just kind of got awesome, crazy man. going out of town right right before NHC. But I'll try to throw a box together for you sometime in the near future, man. Appreciate awesome. you having me on. I would love it. And I always love random beer boxes. So please, I am down. I want to thank Sam for taking the time to come on this week's show. Learned a lot about his home brewing and just some new tips and tricks. So we're also going to throw some of his recipes. He sent me over the beer XMLs that you can download right from our show notes. Also, uh, no feedback this week. I, I didn't get any this week. Kind of weird. I usually get some. So uh, maybe next week. Well, that's it for this week. And we'll talk to you next week on homebrewing. Yeah, why?